Gotham City, like any other large metropolis, abounds in girls of all shapes and sizes. Debutantes, nurses, stenographers, and librarians. Gotham City Library, Miss Gordon speaking. Lopez hair removal, this is Jose. Holy transformation. One minute, plain Barbara Gordon, librarian and Commissioner Gordon's daughter. And the next minute, something new has been added. Batgirl, modeled after her idol, Batman. Holy apparition! No, boy wonder, I'm Batgirl. You are no longer alone, Cape Crusader. It took me three years to track down the Jade Gatto, and three more to figure out how to steal it. Funny, it only took me ten minutes to figure out how to snatch it back. No matter how you do it, crime doesn't pay girls. I'm your host, Stella, and this is Batgirl to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon Podcast, episode 45 for September MMXII. Episode 45 is brought to you by this public service announcement. Strike three! How can you miss that? I quit. You don't see the real problem. Ripcord! Having your eyes tested may clear things up. Avoid a problem, meet it, and beat it. Now I know. And knowing is half the battle. G.I. Joe! Backroll to Oracle is also brought to you by MileHighComics.com, your new and collectible comic book store. Mile High Comics has an inventory of over 5 million comics from the gold, silver, bronze, and modern age, and over 100,000 trade paperbacks. If you're not into the vintage stock, Mile High Comics also has a subscription service called the New Issue Comics Express, offering a discounted price for comics ready to hit the shelves. Examples of the prices you may encounter are November's Background Number 14 and Birds of Prey Number 14, both for $2.69. So if you're looking for vintage back issues or a great modern subscription service, be sure to check out MileHighComics.com. Well, I hope that you are all enjoying the fall weather that has finally started to come it's beautiful here wonderful 70 degrees in virginia and it's just great to get out there and run or go to the playground and do some intense 
training some business to get you know out of the way before we get into the reviews of course uh, first of all and, and perhaps most importantly I do want to resolicit the backroll discussion this open invitation that I put out there in the last episode now if you may have missed the last episode this invitation is basically for readers of the current backroll series so you do have to be you know caught up through at least issue number 12 hopefully you read zero as well and I either want pro people uh, people that are enjoying the series or people that aren't so much and I have received interest and currently I do have two people that are not enjoying the series and two that are so I would like to have one more negative person and one more uh, positive person on those sides and so what is it going to be well it's going to turn into a podcast right we do it on Skype we'd all come together and it's basically going to be like a round table discussion Uh, before we actually do it I'm going to send out a list of topics things that we really uh, should uh, tackle and discuss and each person will be able to give their ideas and their thoughts and opinions and then you know if something pops up that we all want to address maybe someone brings something up and we kind of want to answer that then we can certainly do it and you know I made the the caveat well I guess not really a caveat since that means you know uh, beware but I did really want to be um, forthright in the fact that this is not a trap that's what I said last time this is not a trap for anyone that is enjoying the book because I know if you're listening right now you know that I'm not so much enjoying it and I don't want you to feel like you're gonna come on and I'm going to attack you and that is not at all the purpose I'm I really am coming to this with an open mind and I just want to hear what you have to say and so it's just gonna be a really open forum and you know that's kind of the rule number one is that we all you know all these other people because I don't necessarily know them uh, all these other people are gonna have to come on and also have an open mind and and be positive for the others so it's gonna be a safe environment and I and I want people that are pro to come on so again I, I put that out there for you so looking for one more of each I'm still sort of gonna play the uh, the moderator um, position uh, Donovan my friend Donovan over you know at the Batman universe dot net he thought maybe you I should take a part you know because well it is my show and, and you know I also want to kind of get in on the discussions and I think that for the most part I am uh, going to step aside but you know I think that I probably will at the same time share my opinions or maybe jump in if there's maybe a thought that I'd like to touch upon or, or address as well so I'm not going to be completely separated from everything but uh, um, I do I think it'll be great for listeners to hear other people other than me and and to get a taste of the other opinion other opinions that are out there so I put that out there for you guys I also want to as we like to say in the comic business pimp a a a dear friend of mine uh, such a a nice guy and his wife so Eddie D'Angelini and I met Eddie last year for the first time at San Diego comic-con and his wife Kristen and then this year we met up again and had dinner a couple times which was great and Kevin Kevin uh, my my ex fiance my ex internet fiance he also met us up so that was that was a great I guess the stories that you didn't hear from San Diego comic-con but what is collectors so it's the loves this is how he describes collectors 
the love story of a husband, a wife, and a comic book collection. Collectors is a Sunday-style color comic strip published online every Sunday, written and drawn by Eddie D'Angelini. Collectors is a Sunday-style comic strip about Eddie, an average married guy working hard to survive modern life. His big downfall, he is an obsessive comic book collector who can tell you the issue number and year of the first appearance of the most obscure comic book characters before it could tell you his bank account number or the date of his wedding anniversary. His loving wife, Kristen, sees the good in Eddie even when she's at her wit's end with his obsession. She may not understand it, but she's learned to accept it and hopes to contain it and be her husband's voice of reason. These are just really great, um, fun comic strips. It really does remind you of the Sunday comic strips, which is great. And I remember the first time that I saw this, which is, I think, before San Diego. It must have been in July, I think. I saw it pop up on, on Facebook. And I was reading this, and I thought, hey, you know, that guy in the comic strip looks like Eddie. And it's funny because, well, it is. it was based off of Eddie, so it's sort of like a duh, like a facepalm sort of moment. But it's really fun. I really encourage you to check out. You can go to collectorscomic.com and you can check out his comic strips both past and then well present and in the future when they come out every Sunday and they're just great and fun and also he's got this new thing this big collectors 1000 giveaway and so the collectors Facebook page is closing in on 1000 likes and um, he's going to celebrate it with big collectors 1000 giveaway and when he reaches 1000 likes one lucky fan will win a collectors t-shirt and 12 silver and bronze age comics and there's a world's finest there's Sergeant Fury and the Highland Commandos X-Men and Teen Titans, Flash, there's a Daredevil, Marvel Comics, Doctor Strange, Peter Parker, Spec Spidey, Superman, Human Torch, um, what is that? Ghost something, I've never seen that before, and a Captain America comic, so a nice group right there. So basically you go to Facebook, you like the collector's page, and then you share the web page on your Facebook wall, and then when he reaches 1,000 likes, he's going to choose a random person um, who's liked the page and shared the giveaway, and they'll get a t-shirt, which is great, and then those Bronze Age comics. So I would definitely, yeah. I mean, those are great comics, I would say, right there. I have no idea what the uh, the ghost one is. It's like Ghost Man Note. No idea. that One of them, the Captain America is cutting it off, and I, very obscure comic, I think, because I've never heard of it. But, <laughs> so I definitely encourage you to check that out and, and support my uh, my good friend. And it's, even if he were not my friend, I would say support, because it it's just great. It's creative and everything. So please support Eddie. And finally, if you remember on the last episode, it was the end of the Batman family, right? Number 20 ended it all. And and then I told you a little bit about what happened, right? Because it seemed like they were all planning to continue. You know, the writers, the editors, uh, they were answering letters as if everything was going to happen and continue on. But something happened, and that something was the DC implosion of 1978, and I sort of had questions about it. And I thought, you know, one person that I believe will definitely know something or everything about this is my good friend and knowledgeable guy, Michael Bailey. And so I emailed him right after that, and I had four questions for him. Well, four sets of questions, I guess. So first I asked, do you know if this was a surprise to the creators? The way Rizakis and the gang at Batman Family were planning for the future, number 20 makes me believe this could be so. Number two, did any other books like Detective get pulled back from the chopping block? 
Number three, was the implosion considered a success? If it failed, did DC try to get back to the way it was prior? And finally, number four, would you say that the implosion is the grandfather of the new 52 method? Could we look at the implosion's results to hypothesize what the new 52 will accomplish? And here is his answers. So for number one, I am pretty sure that some of the creators were caught unawares, but that is my Swiss cheese memory pulling together snippets I have read over the years without being able to show my work, so to speak. I think they went ahead with the explosion full steam and then had the rug pulled out from under them. Number two, I don't think Detective was ever on the chopping block. It was mainly the titles that were started during the explosion. Detective was a mainstay by that point, so I doubt they were thinking of canceling it. Number three, the implosion wasn't an initiative on the part of DC. It was a reaction to low sales, so it's not like DC editorial said, hey, let's cancel a bunch of books and see where this goes. It was more, holy crap, sales on these books suck. This is failure. Abort. Abort. And it's not like DC was changing their continuity or anything. The explosion was an attempt to get more rack space and experiment in other genres and create more properties, and when that failed, they scaled back. Also, I don't think anyone in editorial officially referred to the mass cancellations as an implosion. That tag was added on by creators and fans. And final number four, I would not consider the implosion a grandfather to the 52. They are two different animals. The new 52 is an attempt to radically revamp 98% of DC's line with a huge launch and press, and it was designed to bring in new readers. The implosion was, as I said, a, reac a reaction to low sales and wasn't really talked about and just kind of happened. One day there are all these titles, and the next Firestorm is a backup feature in the flash. So I don't see one having anything to do with the other. The closest the new 52 has to a grandfather would be Crisis on Infinite Earths, and even then DC tried to keep as much of the history as possible. The implosion is more of a tragedy than anything else. You know, I had researched and, and saw that DC was on the chopping block, and then, you know, Michael wrote back and said that he didn't believe it was. But then later on, he did email me back, and he had this to say, So I have been listening to this fantastic series of episodes of a show called Hypnobob, about the natural history of the Batman. In the late 70s installment, he says that Detective Comics was indeed on the chopping block because sales were low, but DC opted to cancel Batman Family instead, even though sales were higher. Apparently canceling the book, the company was named after was considered bad form. Uh, he then tells me that he thinks he I would dig these episodes and the host Jim Moon, he has a, a real dry sense of humor and really hates Batmite, so he's probably not reading some of those issues. But I guess there's an inadvertent pimp there for Jim Moon and Hypno Bob and you can go there uh, hypnogoria.blogspot.com so there I just pimped you out. He probably does not listen to the show but I may have gotten you some listeners right there so thank you so much to michael bailey for answering those questions and hopefully you the listeners are intrigued by those answers and just you know you learned something right there and it was just a it's very interesting to sort of um well you know we're going through right now the new 52 and then when I was reading these vintage issues. It was like, oh my gosh, it's like the new 52 back then. Um, but yeah, like Michael said, you know, two completely different animals, but it was interesting to, to learn more about what happened. 
So that's all I have there for the business. And now it's time for, you know, the fun side of the show. Uh, reviews. Uh, so now, you know, we get back to sort of the way I had it before, I guess, you know, before Batman Family, where now there are just two-part stories and two different issues. Man, the more things change, I guess, the more things stay the same. So here we have Detective Comics number 481, A Slow Death in China. Also included in this issue are Ticket to Tragedy featuring Batman, Murder in the Night featuring Batman, Will the Costume Make the Hero featuring Robin, Robin trying on different costumes and Robin with an awkward moment with his ex-girlfriend Lori, let me tell you, and The Whittles Snatch featuring Man Bat and Jason Bard. It came out, uh, or the cover date was December, January 1978 and 1979. Writer on The Slow Death in China, Bob Rizakis, artist Don Heck and Bob Smith, letterer Milt Snappen, colorist Jerry Serpe. Peking, China. An aircraft lands on a runway and Senator Cleary, Congresswoman Babs Gordon, and reporter Leslie disembark. As Senator Cleary speaks on peace talks between China and the U.S. and Leslie takes photographs, a Chinese radical runs forward with a grenade shouting that the Yankee Imperials must die. While Babs considers blowing her secret ID, it is not necessary since Leslie uses her camera and some swift moves to take the radical out of commission and throws the grenade away. At the Hilton Hotel, Babs and Leslie, now with the broken camera, discuss the events at the airport, and Babs wonders when Leslie became so super since she was always Gotham High's biggest klutz. It seems Leslie has a similar background to Babs as she took everything from basic ballet to advanced judo. Wait a minute, is Leslie the new 52 Babs? We also learn from Babs' thought bubbles that her ulterior motive in coming on this trip to Peking, China, was to learn more about this Sino Superman and Wo Fong, which we first saw in Batman Family number 19, whom she believes are connected somehow with her brother Tony before he died, with, you know, bunny quotes around it. And speaking of Wo Fong, we find that he's sent the radical with the grenade and plans to kidnap Barbara Gordon. He sends his Sino Superman, Flash, Superman, and Firestorm to the Hilton, but Leslie runs into them first and is attacked. Batgirl, coming from patrol, happens upon the scene and beats up the different Superman, with some of them exploding just as they did before. Senator Cleary tries to break into the hotel room to check in on Barbara because he hears all this noise. The final Superman leaves and Babs hurries under the covers just as Cleary bursts in. She plays dumb and Wesley, for some reason, follows along, but later asks for her to explain. Babs has to change first. Elsewhere, Wo Fong is upset at the incompetence and he tells them to go and kidnap both of them this time. Babs explains to Leslie about her brother Tony and some secret Chinese project, but she cannot go further as gas seeps into the room and knocks the girls out, allowing the Sino Superman to carry them both out. To be continued. And it's to be continued in Detective Comics number 482, A Quick Death in China. Cover date, February, March, 1979. Also included, Night of the Body Snatcher featuring Batman, The Eternity Book featuring the demon Etrigan, Batmite, uh-oh, Batmite's New York Adventure featuring Batmite, and The League of Crime featuring Robin. Writer on this issue for A Quick Death in China, Bob Rosakis, Pencil Don Heck, and Frank Chiarmonte. Letter Milt Snappen and colorist Jerry Serpin. Well, the news is flooded with reports on the kidnapping, and it even reaches Tony Gordon, who plans to make his way from Tokyo to Peking before director Ephraim finds out. 
Wo Fong reveals that he is using his kidnapping of Barbara as a way to get to Tony Gordon, and Leslie must indeed be Batgirl given her performance at the airport and the sudden appearance of Batgirl in China. Both women are being held in a building somewhere, and Wolf Fong reveals his thought process in kidnapping both women. He drags Leslie away because he believes that she may know something about superheroes and making them, while Barbara plans to somehow get into her costume, and Tony is outside lurking like a creeper. Batgirl interrupts the interrogation of Leslie and begins battling the sign of Superman, including the firestorm that we saw before, Supergirl, and Batman. As Will Fong is trying to sneak away, Tony appears, and he and Babs recognize each other for a split panel, and punches him out and then takes out the Sino Batman. Tony orders Batgirl to carry Leslie out of the building as he keeps his gun trained on Will Fong since the building is about to explode. She gets out, and just as she begins to move forward, the building is destroyed, and Babs falls to her knees in tears. Well... After the first page of this particular story, when I found out that we were going to be in China again, and then, you know, a radical tried to assassinate the senator, I thought, gee, what's going on right now in, you know, the present day that China is really under the microscope for whatever reason? You know, especially with the Sino Superman issue added in back in Batman Family, I thought, oh, this is way too much of a coincidence. But, you know, when it becomes clear that Babs comes in order to find out more about the Sino Superman, I was happy because it meant that it wasn't a separate attack on Chinese-U.S. relations, uh, but really connected to a previous story. So I did appreciate that. Now, I was totally thrown for a loop when Babs was about to go into action, and then Leslie ends up taking the radical out. Uh, I I thought that that was such a great plot point, um, which actually carried through to the end, because you would expect Babs to do it, and then bam! Whoa, that was just a psych. Man, when I was reading this, I I kept looking at that one Sino Superman with the red costume and the triangular design with circles, because I just had no idea who it was. It's really apparent when it's Batman or Superman or Wonder Woman or something, or Flash. And first I thought, is it Orion? But, you know, no, I mean, he's not really a regular leaguer. And, I mean, how would the Chinese know about the new gods? And then I thought, oh my gosh, is it Firestorm? And it actually really was. And such an interesting leaguer to choose. I'm sure Shag Matthews would really enjoy knowing this because that's one of his favorite characters. I can't believe that Leslie went along with everything um, in the hotel room. and I don't know. That's just too great a leap of faith. You know, Babs is kind of acting weird, and she plays everything off as, I don't know, she was asleep and what noise was going on to Robert Cleary, and then, and then Leslie just goes along with it. A little strange there. And I just don't know how Leslie doesn't realize that Babs is Batgirl. Batgirl is there fighting the sign of Superman, and then Babs is there under the covers. Hubba what? I mean, hello, Leslie. I did like the scenes of Batman and the Kamish and then Dick uh, and how they were reacting to this kidnapping. But Cleary, oh my word, it, he's asked if he would be willing to exchange himself for Babs and Leslie if the terrorists were willing. And this is what he says. No comment. Jeez, what a nice guy and gentleman. Uh, aren't he and Babs sort of unofficially dating? I mean, they went to that makeout point. Remember that? I do wonder where Babs got her costume in the second act. Uh, Wolfong does say he found it in the hotel room, but 
he, did he bring the costume with him? It wasn't in that panel. And she says, I hope he forgets about it, but really, where was it? I like the fact that Wolfong seemingly puts two and two together with Leslie showing some skills and then Batgirl suddenly appearing in Peking, meaning Leslie is obviously Batgirl. And I think, you know, this is probably the most amount of, even though it, you know, is incorrect, smarts that I've seen. And this certainly didn't happen when Babs goes to, uh, or went to Spain, if you remember that. It is a little silly that Wolfong believes Leslie can tell him about how Americans create superheroes, especially since, you know, the Bat family are not superpowered. But I guess he is just under these wrong impressions. Okay, so when Tony appears, he's wearing a Sino Superman costume, an actual Superman one, and he makes a comment that the costume adds some power and strength, which I thought was strange, especially since... Um, I thought that these superheroes that they're creating in China were basically being manufactured, not wearing a special suit. And I wonder where he actually got this suit. We only see him slinking around with a rope outside, and then he pops in and decks somebody. So a lot of stuff going on in between, some things not really making sense along the way. And how sudden of an ending. The building just explodes, Batgirl cries, and all you get on that panel is the end. Like, it, there's not even a, how sad, reader. I mean, there's no breaking the fourth wall, just the end. I guess there are no words. I am glad that this particular story connects back to Batman Family number 19 because I remember that one ending oddly. And it also brings back Tony, and Babs actually gets to see him this time rather than just hearing uh, director Ephraim whisper something and, you know, her overhearing it. But if thinking your brother has died once is bad, actually witnessing him die a second time and for reals this time has to be even worse. I think this story had the best of many worlds, including action. It did have some politics in there and evil master planning. Uh, so it was actually a really good story, I would say, and probably better than the, the first um, Sino Superman story that we had in BF number 19. I give this 8 out of 10 bats. So we actually get to carry on the wonderful tradition of the letters page. We've got two of them since we have two issues here. So first we have the letters page from Detective Comics number 481. Dear Editor, The monstrosity chase in Batman Family number 18 was perhaps the best writing Denny O'Neill has done in years. And brother, am I delighted to be able to say that. You see, of all the characters in Batman Family, only the Caped Crusader himself is capable of carrying a 20-page feature regularly. And only Denny O'Neill, of all the writers involved with said magazine, is capable of doing the Batman correctly. Only it's been years since O'Neill wrote a Batman story that was even passable. That he has come back with such finesse is cause for modest celebration. Hopefully he'll stick with the Batman semi-permanently, eh? At any rate, I can remember as far back as Green Lantern number 60, a lovely little tale in which Gardner Fox masterfully showed how a handful of people were, in vastly different ways, affected by a duel between Green Lantern and the Lamplighter. O'Neill's story reminded me of that, only on a subtler level, only right as Batman is a subtler feature than GL. A masterful beginning introducing Barry Dark, involving him briefly with the Batman, and then following both Barry and Batman as they go their separate ways. Batman to a thrilling underground adventure and Barry to his radio station, where, in a neat O'Neill trick, Denny loves coincidences. He spends a hectic evening filling in the narration gaps in the Batman adventure. 
The whole thing was pulled off so smoothly that I must say what I haven't said in a long, long time. Denny O'Neill is the best there is, and apparently he's now even better, as evidenced by his sudden sense of humor. I found the fact that Barry Dark spent a harder evening, evening than the Batman fitfully funny. As for Michael Golden, oh, what words. I'm so glad that the age of realism and comic art is over, because the new young artists like Golden and Marshall Rogers have such a tremendous flair for stylizing their stories. Rogers and his detective stories used a marvelous cinematic approach that my friend Dean Mullaney compared to Citizen Kane, and of course he is right about that. Golden's more subdued style is still so perfectly wrought that I find myself thinking of him in the same class as Mike Cutluta and Bernie Wrightson. I pledge this, gentlemen. As long as Michael Golden is drawing this comic book, I will not miss an issue. Bob Rohde, Rollins College, Winter Park, Florida. One thing that we found interesting going through the mail on Batman Family Number 18 is that every one of the five stories was somebody's favorite. So rather than print just a couple of letters commenting on the entire issue, we've extracted excerpts from a number of missives, which follow. Missives is actually an English derivative from the Latin word mito, meaning to send or throw or hurl sometimes. Dear Editor, The fine art of murder was an excellent Robin vehicle. Juan Ortiz's art is perfectly suited for the teen wonder. Throughout this adventure, Robin was portrayed as sharp, tough, and efficient, which is exactly as it should be. No somber shadows, no juvenile repartee. As long as Dick is Robin, he can't be Batman. No matter what variation of his costume you use, he can't look like a creature of the night, and he shouldn't try. And to switch to a Robin Hood motif would be worse, as that could only make him a third-string green arrow, Speedy being second-string, of course, and that's a fate I wouldn't wish on anyone. However, the Batgirl story was a completely different matter. It seemed to do little more than extol the virtues of the utility belt. The return of Babs's private life was a redeeming feature, though, as it as was Madame Zodiac. Batgirl and Robin should develop her own rogues gallery of worthy foes, so she will no longer have to contend with turkeys like the Killer Moth. Aww, but you know, the Killer Moth, he's, he's got a special place in my heart. I also feel that the Dynamite Duo team should be put on hold for a while until its members develop more as individuals. Dave Alea, Sheboygan, Michigan. I really liked Assault on the Pentagon because it showed just how important Batgirl's utility belt is. I don't like to see that kind of story all the time, but when you do one, it is well worth reading. Martin Meneza, Dunkirk, New York. The Robin story was an average episode with some excellent touches. Robin's acrobatic and combative skills, his having a cream of lady, and having his finely honed mind be considered cold by Laurie Elton. The plot of the Batgirl saga was interesting, and it was exciting to see Batgirl defeat a superpowered villainess. We sometimes forget that crime fighters like Batman, Robin, Batgirl, and the Huntress are so talented, skilled, and trained that even without superpowers, they are able to defeat foes far more powerful than themselves. Wallace L. Hopkins, Glen Carbon, Illinois. One thing to remember is that the well-stocked utility belt can very well be the deciding factor in a battle between supervillain and non-superhero or heroine, B.R. Dear Bob, Man Bat No More was a great story. When Kirk Landstrom decided not to be Man Bat, it shook me up a bit. But somehow, I don't think his retirement will last long. The mystery wasn't so tough to figure out, by the way. As soon as I saw a pantless Man Bat swooping down on the crooks, I realized that it was actually She-Bat. Now I can't wait to see what will happen in Part 2. By the way, just because I'm writing only about the Man Bat story doesn't mean I didn't like the other stories in Batman Family Number 18. It's just that the Man Bat one was my favorite. Scott Hoover, Grand Ledge, Michigan. 
Quite a few readers caught the missing pants clue and deduced the identity of the man-bat who was flapping around Manhattan. A few readers requested that we keep She-Bat flying in future issues, but for the time being, only Kirk will be popping his bat pills. But you can never be sure when we might surprise you again. B.R. Dear Al and Bob, a great addition to Batman family is the Huntress in A Choice of Destinies. Joe Staten is the artist for Helena Wayne's exploits. He captures her femininity as well as her mystery. I like the balance twixt her two identities. It should make for some outstanding copy. Paul Levitz handled this part of his fire story well, and I look forward to the next chapter. Kevin J. Dooley, Glendale, California. As we mentioned last issue, the Huntress is taking her leave of Batman family for a while. Bob Rosakis. Then, as we head over to Detective Comics number 42, before the issue even began, uh, there was a letter from Paul Levitz about sort of this new format, which I kind of found funny because I started here at 482 rather than 481. Welcome to the new combined Detective Comics Batman family. Perhaps we should have said that last issue when we first made the changeover, but that issue was literally assembled after the fact. We took finished issues of the two magazines and trimmed pages to fit the content together into one, hopefully better issue. And that's the basic idea behind the combination of the two titles. We hope that the synthesis will prove better than either by giving us a magazine that has the depth of character possible in the Batman family concept together with the impact of the grand old tradition of Detective Comics. The true power of this synthesis is not yet revealed, even in this issue, for we are just buying the tales that will make this the magazine we want it to be. You'll see a brilliant sequel to the legendary story There's No Hope in Crime Alley in number 43, a new direction for Batgirl and Robin series in 44, the detective debut of the Human Target series moving over from Brave and the Bold to join us next issue, and that's only the beginning. Meanwhile, we think the issue before you is pretty snazzy. Besides the conclusion of the Starlin-Russell Batman epic, we have the beginning of a three-part demon story illustrated by Michael Golden, which Len Wayne calls one of the best things he's ever written. And deep within these pages is a Batmite story we threatened to never print, but had to run once we saw the charm of the script. In closing, we feel constrained to point out, for those of you who may have already detected it, that a new editorial hand is at work guiding this title. In conjunction with our other current changes, DC is combining all the Superman titles under the guidance of senior editor Julie Schwartz, leaving ye editor in charge of all three Batman magazines. We'll do our best to be worthy of the Dark Knight detective and count on your letters to show us the way. Enjoy, Paul Levitz. And here are the letters from number 482. Since we have to squeeze comments on two magazines onto one page, we'll suspend comment for the duration after pointing out that our new letter column logo is the work of Stan Tychinski, who collects our thanks and a free subscription. Interesting. It's it's basically Batman. Um, oh, kind of like the old uh, 60s. Like you see that Batman with his head and then basically like almost wings with the way his cape is. But the cape comes down instead of like a nice little pointed and curved cape it comes down like stalactites are those the ones that come from the ceiling and uh, it says bat cave so that, that just describing as best as i can dear editor why do you keep haunting me batman why why because it's my job for years batman has stalked villains of all types what motivations drove him to ever-increasing risks? His drive and determination began as revenge motive, but as time passed, a new Batman emerged. His personal motivation took on a broader scope. He was now fighting for the public's welfare. All of which brings me back to the stunning confrontation with Quayface. Batman's pursuit of this almost pitiful monster seemed to transcend the usual get-the-crook idea, becoming more of an expected role, using fear-provoking tactics to get that job done more effectively. 
Mike Bakes, Pontiac, Michigan. Then just wait for next issue and a bit of role reversal. P.L. Wow, now we're to Paul Evans. This is weird. Dear Editor, I feel that The Tomb of the White Bat was one of Denny's best tries ever at writing the perfect Batman yarn and also one of the top mood stories. I got the feeling this whole story took place in a pitch black environment, but I was greatly disappointed in the, in the Batgirl and Robin strips, which is distressing since those two used to be the mainstays of Batman family. Thus far, I have seen nothing to distinguish the Huntress from any number of superheroines, bring out the reason she became a crime fighter, and her personal life can also be highlighted. Finally, the suggestion of Alfred in a solo or series of stories has considerable merit. You might even present Alfred's side of a story in contrast to Batman's or Robin's. Mike White, Mackinac, Illinois. More emphasis on the interrelationships of the Batman family is upcoming, Mike, including a long-overdue Batman Batgirl story, P.L. Dear Editor, I will never forget the Englehart era of Detective Comics, wherein the classic Batman was resurrected. Bruce Wayne's private life was revitalized, villains were characterized perfectly, and plots and subplots were executed with flair and brilliance. With that said, let me say that Len Wayne's return has been fantastic, because he has built up this legacy in an equally inspired manner in 478 to 479. It would be highly unfair to compare Englehart and Wayne, so I'll make no attempt to do so. Credit for the transition really belongs to Marshall Rogers, whose precise graphics has truly been one of the best reasons for classifying this as a classic Batman era. And absolutely no one could have done a better job of inking than Dick Giordano. Len's apparent resurrection of the Catwoman is long overdue. I still think that Selena Kyle would be a great love interest if only she were treated with a bit more pathos. And I have an inkling that you have plans for Bruce and Selena. It might be interesting. Tony Edwards, Los Angeles, California. That interesting set of plans may develop. Watch the pages of Batman for Selena's next appearance. But she'll be back in this magazine soon as well. P.L. More comments next time. But now, time out for the contest. And right below, it's got the second Superman movie contest. Question 20. I don't know what's been going on here. Uh, see ad pages in DC's 40-cent magazines for a rule. So, the second... or No, this is... 20 questions, my gosh. What do you have to do? This is this would be another good question to ask Michael Bailey. I mean, if there are 20 questions, how many are there? Do you have to answer all of them? And what is the what do you get if you win? So here's question 20. Prior to his criminal career, General Zod was commander of the Kryptonopolis Space Center, commander of the Kryptonian Army, or head of security for the Science Council. I'm going to say B, but... Um, I guess I'll never know. Well, that is it for the vintage section. Uh, I'm going to take a brief break, as I always do. When I come back, I will review Batgirl number 12, Birds of Prey number 12, and World's Finest number 4. But now, Zias's Radio Hour featuring Daft Punk's Harder, Better, Faster, Stronger. See you soon. <laughs> Hello, boys and girls. It's your dear old Uncle Joker. We've got an internet access here in Arkham, so I'm doing a little browsing. Hmm, lolcats, lolcats, porn, lolcats. What's this? Bailey's Batman Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast devoted to everything Dark Knight Detective. Well, Michael Bailey, where's Bailey's Joker podcast, eh? We'll see about that. Harley! 
Get our things! We're going to Georgia! <laughs> hey everyone, Michael Bailey here asking you to check out my bi-weekly internet radio show, Bailey's Batman Podcast. Or at least I'm asking you to check it out while you still can, until the Joker shows up on my doorstep. Bailey's Batman Podcast is a hodgepodge-type show where I discuss all aspects of the Dark Knight's history. Comics, movies, animation, even trading cards and action figures. Everything Batman-related is fair game, and yes, that does include the villains, which includes the Joker, so he won't kill me. New episodes drop every other Tuesday over at www.baileysbatmanpodcast.com. The site also has links to the iTunes page, the RSS feed, my Twitter handle if you're into the social media thing, and the Bailey's Batman Podcast Facebook page. Bailey's Batman Podcast is a proud member of the Batman Podcast Connection, which you can find at batmanpodcastconnection.wordpress.com. I really hope that's the UPS guy. Why can't I have Batman in my basement? i 
recognized that uh, the Zias Radio Hour song uh, and thinking, oh well, that's the Kanye West song, but I would just like you to know that Daft Punk actually did that song way before Kanye West did, so definitely, you gotta give Daft Punk some props, uh, even if you're not you know, a, kind of a, a techno fan, I think that they're I don't know, I, I'd say that they're one of the best in their genre for sure well, here we have <laughs> Backroll number 12 is sort of like the uh, the rant heard across the world from yours truly. And so what I'm going to do is I'll, I'll give the recap and then I'm just going to pull in that particular rant. Donovan said that, you know, it was so passionate and powerful that, and, and I can't replicate that. There's no way I said that last episode. And he thought, why not bring it in from TBU? So I'll do my recap here. I'll bring in uh, my rant slash review from TBU. And then I'll cut back, and there were just some, you know, there are some positive things, and, well, maybe just one, but, uh, and and some other thoughts that I had that I, I didn't really air on TBU, and, and then I'll I'll just end it there. So, um, here we go. So, back roll number 12, Every Time I Fail. Writer Gail Simone, penciler Ardian Sioff, inker Vicente Sefuentes, and colorist Ulysses Areola. At the start of the issue, Batgirl is still at Detective McKenna's apartment, and she continues to ask how McKenna is involved with Nightfall. McKenna explains that she was in a bad way for several months, and no one could help her until Cherie showed up on her doorstep. Before she can continue, Batwoman shows up unexpectedly, kicks down the window, and goes for McKenna. McKenna stupidly shoots a gun at her, but Batwoman takes her out. Then Batgirl tries to calm Batwoman down, but it ends up in a not-so-friendly spar with Batwoman having the upper hand and Batgirl calling Uncle. Batwoman offers Batgirl a silk handkerchief and explains that McKenna has caught the attention of the DEO, but Batgirl explains that she is needed. As McKenna briefly explains about the danger of Nightfall, speak of the devil and she shall appear. Nightfall calls McKenna, tells her they have Ricky, and Batgirl needs to come alone to the Three Towers or else he dies. Elsewhere, Jim Gordon, giggity giggity, look at that six-pack, is called in the middle of the night and is told that in the chaos of the Arkham Asylum breakout way back when, like in September, James Jr. escaped. At the Three Towers, Batgirl appears and Bonebreaker tries to explain Nightfall's vision for the city before a fight begins. Batgirl narrates the backstories of each of the members, which he learned from McKenna. During the fight, we see Charisse in her Nightfall uniform watching the fight on a monitor and talking to D- James Jr. James apparently kept Charisse alive in Arkham and has been counseling her on Batgirl. Charisse explains that her vision is for a golden city first bathed in crimson. 
While she is faring rather well in the fight, Batwoman and McKenna arrive, and Batgirl runs off into the building in order to get her part of the mission done. She finds a bandaged Ricky and another man chained up and in the cage that Charisse has. Batgirl talks to Ricky and tries to get him out, not paying attention until it is too late. Nightfall stabs Batgirl from behind and explains that in order to save a city, one must kill a Batgirl. First, we have Batgirl number 11, Batgirl's origin revealed, and then in two months, we have Nightfall Triumphant. So, here from episode 98 of the Batman Universe. Um, I think the quote that I could probably pull from, from Dustin's review is that, you know, it doesn't make sense. And, and this is obviously in context, but there were so many things that did not make sense to me. Um, I guess I... There's so much I need to say about this, but I, I can't take, like, 15 minutes on this. You know, my frustration with this is that it is not written well. And people may be, I mean, on my own show, people think that I'm, like, too harsh on this particular book and Gil Simone. And, you know, even if this were another character, I would still say that it's not written well. And even if I pretend really hard that this is a Babs Gordon from another universe and, like, just accept that, it's still not written well. And I don't know, there's, like, no way around that. I don't, like... I have such a love of Babs Gordon that it's it's starting to fade right now because of this book. And that has only happened once before, and that was because of Spider-Man. And this is what happens when terrible writing and terrible stories start bringing down a character, and it's really heartbreaking. And so now all I can really do is go back to the vintage stuff, and that's really where the heart of the character is, because this isn't Babs Gordon. And fine, Flashpoint made it a different character. Whatever. Fine. This is Babs Gordon of the New 52. Okay, but do I care about that character? No, because she doesn't know what's going on. Just as Don said, she gets flipping beat around every single issue, and then all of a sudden she can take on three different people and bring them down. How does that make sense? Uh, I don't know, Batwoman comes in, and not only how did she get that information, but why are they fighting to begin with? Um, Batman knows of Batwoman, and he most assuredly knows of Batgirl, so shouldn't those two probably... I mean, if A equals B and B equals C, then obviously A has to equal C. So why doesn't Batgirl understand that Batwoman's on the same team? And then she turns around and cries, uncle? These are the things that Simone puts in, like, these these little things that are supposed to be cute. And it's not working. Stephanie Brown, the thing she said when she would, like, spit out something out loud and did, totally did not mean to do that. Those were, I mean, those were cute. And I really liked them. I laughed at them. This self-crying uncle in a serious battle talking about a silk handkerchief, why Batwoman even had it, like, that brought down some respect for that character, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, what? I, I don't really understand that. Th- um, Charisse and James Jr., this is like Bane and Talia all of a sudden from The Dark Knight Rises, where apparently James Jr. protected Charisse in Arkham Asylum, and she wonders why, which is a oh li- like a, that's a really good question to ask. Why did you protect me? And he said, because I appreciate your vision for the city. So you're telling me that when she first potentially committed these murders, which I can't remember if she was 12 or 16, I know there's a gap, but she was young, and she was in Arkham Asylum, she already had this plan all figured out, and she told James. And James decided that I'm going to protect this girl because of that. No. There's no way she had this whole diabolical plan turn out. Oh, but wait. But wait. Here's the better thing. Okay, she was in jail when she was how old? 
I, I forgot. Was it twelve or sixteen? It was a it was a young it was age. Like, I think it was sixteen. Okay. And they've already stated that she's eighteen years old. So that's two yeah, years. She was. So you're telling me that James that. Gordon Jr. has been in jail for two years when this was all happening? Oh my god! <laughs> Editor, Bobby Chase, where are you? Yeah, I don't. And the whole, like, revolving door thing, like, we get this speech again that, you know, they want to stop this revolving door of of people coming out and going back in. And that's a legitimate argument because, yes, that happens. People complain to Batman all the time about that. But, hello, James Jr. is a convict and she's allowing him to walk around? Hello, hypocrite. I, I don't really understand that. I guess you owe him a debt of gratitude. I don't really know. I, I'm I'm annoyed with finding things out in narrator boxes as if we knew it all along. Ricky is all of a sudden Mexican and 16. The fact that he's 16 is repeated multiple times. Uh, we learn that apparently McKenna's a dirty cop, and we still don't know why. It We were told that she had a relationship with Nightfall two issues ago, I'm pretty sure. And even this issue, we still don't know what that relationship is because Batwoman bursts in the scene. How she's a dirty cop, why the DEO is after her... Because they deal with, like, supernatural elements. And, like, what? Like, I don't... I just don't understand. Um, and then, to be honest, like, Donovan kind of stole my thunder because I think it would have meant more coming for me. And I, I totally had it written down. But the fact that if Batgirl's going to be dumb and, like, talk to Ricky, you know, with his leg cut up and bandage on his face, and apparently not wear body armor that can stop a blade, because that's kind of standard. She even talks about her body armor when she's fighting Batwoman, but this apparently doesn't stop a blade. I, may, maybe she does deserve to die, because she certainly is not pulling her weight as a hero. And again, this is, I mean, I don't, I don't know. Why does this character exist? It was so big to pull back Barbara Gordon, and this is what you gave us. I, I just have, like, I'm losing respect for the character. And for me, that is like, that it, I don't know. It's like a string of curse words coming out of my mouth. I feel like washing my mouth because I'm saying that. But it's it's just not, I, uh, I'm, I'm done, I guess. Listening to you, Stella, makes me sad. Yeah, that's, I mean, I feel, when I read it, it's, like, painful. and And I wish it weren't like that. But here's the reality. The reality is that Batgirl is now becoming the new Detective Comics. You know, a lot of us didn't like Detective Comics. But the reality is that Batgirl still sells pretty well. So the question is, why? You know, I was re-listening to that clip before I put it in and before I sort of finally decided to actually do it. And, I mean, not to be dramatic or anything, but it, it sort of did make me tear up a little bit, which is strange. Listening to yourself makes you sad, but oh, I don't know. It, it It is a really painful <laughs> a painful thing to have one of your favorite characters um, sort of be dragged through the mud, and just like Dustin said, you know, we do want to know why, and you know, that's one of the reasons why I do want to have this Batgirl panel in here. I'm really, really um, looking forward to hearing from people that are enjoying the run, and I want to know why. So some things I didn't mention. Batwoman, I think when she first appears in this particular book, this is one of my pauses, perhaps one of the only ones, she really appears in a, a really nice art layout. And I don't know if you're reading Batwoman. Batwoman's also one of my top books, certainly from DC. It's just very reminiscent of the art from Batwoman and how it's how, how it is put together. So something else, you know, after Nightfall calls, Batgirl asks if Nightfall is just being hyperbolic about skinning Ricky. And I thought that this was a dumb thing to ask, especially given the fact that, remember, they 
they cut off his leg a couple issues ago and she saw this. Again, we hear um, why Nightfall and the gang does what they do and hey, guess what? We've heard this before. How about something new from them? During the fight with Nightfall's minions, Batgirl thinks it's some how important to remember what McKenna said, but McKenna is really giving her their backstory. Whereas I think that it'd probably be best to hear what their powers, their list of powers or abilities were. So not really sure about that. I don't know. That's not really going to give Batgirl the upper hand when you know uh, how they became the person they are and that they have anger issues or something like that. Nightfall's outfit, because we're kind of finally seeing details, uh, definitely like spoiler, Madame Mask, uh, which is from Marvel, Pandora and Azrael all together. Very interesting design. I did wonder, you know, how does James Jr. know that Babs is Batgirl? But this is actually sort of answered in a Batgirl's origin in number zero, which I'm not going to spoil, but um, get to that next month. And, yeah, we have Ricky again. And, see, I did tell you that something more was probably going to come of him after he just ran away through the bedroom of, you know, that couple. But please, you know, give us someone we actually care about or someone who's close to Batgirl, like McKenna or Alicia, not this random 16-year-old Mexican car thief. Yeah, again, I just can't believe that Batgirl is so out of it that she she's not paying attention to her surroundings and she gets stabbed from behind. And like I said, you know, if she's like this, then maybe she does deserve to die. I give this 4 out of 10 bats. Next up, we have Birds of Prey number 12, Heartbreak and Vine. Writer Dwayne Sprzynski, artist Cliff Richards, and course Gabe Eltayeb. Dubai, picking up from the previous issue, we see Starwing shoot the chairman with a dart that contains toxin and will be activated if he continues his deep core drilling. Dinah looks as this goes on, agrees with Batman's words that she was a fool, and that she feels like she's never felt so betrayed. On the chairman's plane to the Gulf of Mexico, Ivy is giving a performance review when Canary has had enough and hits her. Ivy reminds everyone of their deal, and Dinah reminds her that she agreed to no killing. Ivy then says that they are not noble, and points to each of them and says why. Beckerel wears a mask and flees the police, Katana has sent many souls to her sword, and Canary is still fresh with the blood of her husband. Having enough of this conversation, Starling drives the plane in a dangerous maneuver, throwing the rest of the birds all over the place. She does this several times, and while Ivy is distracted, Batgirl again tells Dinah that she is confident that Batman can help them. Dinah relents and will wait for her signal. The birds then jump out of the plane and send it careening into an oil rig. Each of the birds then have a particular job to drown the rig, and Ivy assures them the people on the rig will get onto lifeboats. This is true until Dinah finds some trapped below and the others refuse to continue. Ivy makes Starling forcibly overload the rig by slamming her head into the controls, and it goes down, with the people actually getting out and Ivy carrying Starling. Later, beneath Robinson Park in Gotham City, Ivy is getting some treatments in a chemical tank when Batgirl gives the signal. Batgirl runs out, Dinah aims a canary cry at Ivy, probably as a concussive blow. Starling rips some of Ivy off of Ivy, and Katana uses her blades to put Ivy down permanently. Ivy makes her final threat as she fades away, and Dinah attacks Katana for what she's done, but she ends up saying she trusts her, but this was not the reason she formed the Birds of Prey. Next up, the secret untold origin of the Birds of Prey in number zero. I do like that Dinah brings back Batman's advice from the Night of the Owls, but I am rather surprised that Dinah was not more careful about the people she surrounded herself with and didn't know every detail of their lives. It seems like she, she fell short as a team leader in this respect. 
So we have Ivy really in a in a new pre-52 Jason Todd role here, really t taking the birds to task and addressing their hypocrisy and, and self-proclaimed proclaimed moral attitudes. And I like that. And who'd have thunk that Starling would be the one to show the most common sense on that plane? I actually enjoyed seeing the birds gone bad. You know, it was an interesting change, especially when you think that they are really close to that line to begin with. But here they are doing something somewhat honorable, but for the wrong reasons, wrong methods. But there is something sort of fun, uh, you know, seeing Batgirl sort of on the opposite side of the law, but it's forcibly, right, with no choice. So yeah, definitely, it still sort of reminds me of Teen Titans, the Slade, oh, sorry, the, the TV show, the Slade Robin, you know, as an apprentice episode. After the oil or tanker episode, uh, this quote from Dinah, Ivy broke her promise, which was something she had never done before. Any shred of respect I may have had for her or her mission was gone. This is kind of a statement I don't really believe. You know, at first I thought it was meant to be sarcastic, but I realized that it's actually her being really straightforward. I just can't really believe that Ivy never broke a promise and hasn't she already done or hasn't she already with what she's done to the birds and then Dinah actually somewhat respected her mission come on now I do have a great deal of issue with the amount of hypocrisy that goes on in this book Dinah uses her canary cry on Ivy which actually could have been fatal but she attacks Katana after she hack slashes I just feel like there needs to be some consistency here and this is really started from the very beginning and I think there just needs to be some sort of line drawn as to whether there's killing allowed or brutal force allowed on this team or not who is this random doctor scientist that pops up? Are we just supposed to go with it and know that it must be someone who created Ivy's biosuit? Why is there no backstory? I'm pretty shocked with Batgirl taking such a bold move and actually running away. It definitely puts everyone's life in danger, and I'm really shocked that Ivy doesn't have a quick trigger to just start the process of breaking their bodies down. In fact, doesn't she attest to having one in the previous issue in case they didn't follow her plans? Did they call her bluff, or does she really care for the birds and... Maybe she's not strong enough to pull the proverbial trigger. I think this issue really highlights some of the team problems that the birds have. They may have been doing this type of work, albeit separately, for a while, but they really seem to rush into things and make rookie mistakes. They think about the now and how to easily fix the problem they are facing, but they don't really think about the fallout or what could come after this. And I think that they're really going to have to deal with that now. 7.5 out of 10 birds. And finally, we have World's Finest Number 4, Rebirth Conclusion. Writer Paul Levitz for the present-day sequences. We have Pencil George Perez and inker Scott Kobush. And colorist Hi-Fi for the flashback sequences. We have artist Kevin McGuire, colorist Rosemary Cheatham. After throwing Haku into Tokyo Bay, Power Girl flies toward him while carrying Huntress. They both question why he affects Power Girl so much, and she guesses he may be linked to Apocalypse and Darkseid. Opposite to what Power Girl thought, Haku is actually having the time of his life in the bay and wreaking havoc on many of the ships. Huntress drops in on one of them and uses it to gather up some of the sailors that have jumped ship. Power Girl tries to clean up the oil from a leaking ship. 45 months ago, Rome. The girls meet up again, talk about Karen's scientific exploits, then accidentally let it slip that they need money. Cue the Italian sleazoids who believe they can help them with their money problem. Luckily, Karen and Helena can handle themselves, all without dropping an ice cream cone. Later at the hotel, Helena is doing more research on her not-father Batman and her not-mother Catwoman. She jokingly considers asking him for a job, but decides she just has to make do. Now, 
Power Girl has set fire to the oil in hopes of burning it up, while Huntress looks on and continues to pick people up out of the bay. A military ship shoots a missile, but Haku bats it away and Power Girl chases it down. Now sporting the famous hole in her costume, Power Girl goes back to fighting Haku. Huntress zip lines across the bay to another ship and tells Karen to make Haku overeat on enriched uranium. She throws the missile head at him and he does soak up the energy, which causes him to dissipate. Some soldiers come to arrest Huntress and Power Girl, but they fly off, continuing to ask questions like where Haku came from, whom he was working for, and the effects of the radiation on Power Girl, but not on Huntress. Next up is World's Finest, number zero. Okay, I don't really understand the point of the fight in Rome with the guys. The discussion before you know, is necessary because we do learn what Karen is doing in order to get her tech up and running, but do we need to see them fighting in their street clothes with these crazy people? Uh, and you know what? This is kind of true, unfortunately, because in Italy, like, you really do have to be careful about not making eye contact with certain people because they'll basically find that to mean basically, you know, take me to bed or that sort of thing. And I, this is like true, true story, people. Okay, all the sexual innuendo coming from Karen, I swear that was how pre-New 52 Hunters talked and acted. And this is such a role reversal. I like this scene with Helena doing research on Batwoman, a Batman and Catwoman, but resolving to just deal with this Earth. And the cat having a negative reaction with Huntress, which is odd, actually, because it's opposite to what we had seen in the Huntress miniseries. Interesting also how Helena is concerned about the oil in this issue, but was okay with all that oil dumping in, in the ocean in her own miniseries, if you remember that. Now, I don't really understand how the, the destruction of Haku really worked. He... he eats enriched uh, uranium, which happens to be too much for him to digest and ends up exploding slash dissolving. Oh, I kind of want the science to be explained a little more because I'm still sort of confused how that all worked. I'm fine with the hole in Karen's chest being covered, um, you know, for her new costume. Uh, but it was fun to make a nod toward Power Girl's fan favorite costume by having that por particular portion shredded. And it's kind of funny how <laughs> shredded costumes is like the theme for this book. So it took four issues for Haku to go away. And frankly, we we're left with more questions than answers. And even the characters realize this since the entire final page is one question after another. This Haku wasn't really the best villain, I think, to start with because we are basically just given repetitious fights, the destruction of the city, the heroes are weakened, but they fight back and gain a small victory, rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat. I mean, what is he doing in Tokyo? Where is he from? Why did he destroy the quantum tunneler? Perhaps it would have just been better to have an actual apocalypse villain. Uh, besides the backflashes, we really haven't made much progress with our characters, so the arc overall uh, seems to end just as it begins. I give this 6 out of 10 shredded costumes. Next up is Babs in the Tube. <laughs> This is the segment where I examine an individual appearance of Barbara Gordon in the media, and it may be on TV, on film, and currently I am watching the 1966 Batman TV series. 
episode 111, season 3, episode 16, The Jokes on Catwoman, January 4th, 1968 was its air date. Starring Adam West as Bruce Wayne slash Batman, Burt Ward as Dick Grayson slash Robin, Neil Hamilton as Commissioner Jim Gordon, Stafford Rep as Chief O'Hara, Alan Napier as Alfred Pennyworth, and Yvonne Craig as Barbara Gordon slash Batgirl. Guest starring Cesar Romero as the Joker, David Lewis as Warden Creighton, and Eartha Kitt as Catwoman. As a dynamic duo depart in their Batmobile, Batgirl tries to rev up her Batgirl cycle, but it refuses to start. Joker and Catwoman leap from the bushes and reveal to her that they swipe the spark plug from her beloved bike, preventing it from working. They then capture Batgirl and tie her up on the front lawn with deadly cat whiskers, holy bondage, which when exposed to body heat will contract and strangle her to death. After Joker and Catwoman leave, Batgirl uses her nose to activate the lawn sprinkler, causing the cat whiskers to expand and spare her life. She then hurries to Gordon's office and arranges to meet Batman and Robin at the Grimalkin Novelty Company. Arriving at the Archcriminal's hideaway, the dynamic trio overhear the villain's entire plan. The fiends depart for Phony Island to find the secluded gunpowder, unaware of the trio, dogging their every move. Later at Phony Island, the villains find the gunpowder is hidden somewhere inside the lighthouse. While searching the house, the trio ambush and try to apprehend the crooks. When the Joker, trying to make a break for it, trips a switch, accidentally revealing the gunpowder. Without thinking, the Joker lights a match so he can examine the gunpowder more closely, and as Batman wrestles the match away from him, it is unwittingly tossed into the gunpowder and sets it off. Batman quickly protects everyone with anti-blast bat powder. And as the trio prepares to deliver the criminals to the pokey, the Catwoman demands legal aid. Lucky Pierre, who has never lost a case. Holy Perry Mason! Later in court, Pierre refuses to cross-examine any of Batman's witnesses, despite the latter acting as prosecutor. Unknown to the Caped Crusader, the entire jury has secretly been replaced with Catwoman's former henchmen, who issue a dishonest not-guilty verdict. Holy fixed jury! Unfortunately, the jury foreman loses his disguise at the end of the trial. After Batman recognizes him as Marvin the Moose, ooh, a moose, one of Catwoman's former accomplices, and the other jury member is Dave the Dummy. Marvin then pulls a machine gun. Batman quickly disarms the gun. The Joker and his men rise to battle, and the crooks are rounded up. As Catwoman and Joker are taken to prison, Lucky Pierre finally loses his first case, and he angrily discards all of his lucky charms and storms out. Later, Louis the Lilac surprises Barbara Gordon at the Gotham Library as Louis the Lilac plans to corner the perfume market. Barbara answers Commissioner Gordon's call to tell him what happened. Well, Batman was not very nice driving away before checking to see if Batgirl's cycle started. I mean, even my friends and I do this for each other. More feminist messages, definitely, uh, this time coming from the wife of the lighthouse keeper, sort of about cleaning the lighthouse. Anti-blast bat powder, spoilers, if only Batman had had that in uh, The Dark Knight Rises. The trial, so weird. I felt like I was in a Twilight Zone, uh, but it was interesting to have Batman act as a lawyer but still have on his bat suit. It was a great fight at the end, though I'm surprised the judge you know, didn't tap his gavel and call contempt before everyone. And there was some shipping with Batgirl and her fawning over Batman before getting into the Batmobile and while Batman was conducting the trial, which is pretty interesting. But it was a, it was a fun... It was a fun episode overall. Okay, next up is everyone's favorite 
segment, Shipper Spotlight. And we actually have a guest this time. My good friend Michael Bailey is going to host Shipper Spotlight this time. Hey everyone, Michael Bailey here with the Shipper Spotlight for this episode. Recently, Superman and Wonder Woman made headlines, literally, by hooking up in the pages of Justice League number 12. Stella thought it would be worth a lark to see what, if any, kind of relationship Wonder Woman and Superman had during the pre-crisis era, and if I thought they were hot or not. I gotta admit, I was a bit apprehensive to take this on, actually because while I have read a lot of pre-crisis Superman, I could only think of two instances where the two had any kind of romantic feelings for each other. Thanks to some research and my friend Bertoni, I discovered that there were at least five instances where Superman and the Wondrous One had feelings for each other to one extreme or another. The first, chronologically anyway, came in Superman's girlfriend Lois Lane number 93, which had a cover featuring the mod Wonder Woman, i.e. the one mostly without superpowers or a costume, tossing Lois around like a rag doll. In this story, Wonder Woman and Superman hook up at a circus and begin a whirlwind romance that goes pretty far until it is revealed that Wonder Woman is actually Kryptonian criminal R. Uel. Then, in World's Finest number 204, Clark Kent and Diana Prince are set up by, get this, a computer dating service. They meet up, and through the course of the issue, the idea of them being a couple is entertained, and eventually they decide against that, despite the obvious attraction between the two of them. After that is Superman's girlfriend, Lois Lane, number 136, where Superman and Wonder Woman hook up once again, much to Lois's chagrin, but it all turns out to be a plot to snuff out an... can't believe I'm saying this... an escaped mental patient. Seems this woman had a thing for Superman, and when they heard she had escaped from the asylum, Wonder Woman and Superman pretended to be a couple so that she would go after Wonder Woman and not Lois. Messed Up doesn't even begin to describe that. Then, in DC Comics Presents number 32, Superman and Wonder Woman are made to fall in love by Eros, son of Aphrodite, and hilarity ensues. And by hilarity, I mean Wonder Woman throws Lois into traffic. So these two never really got together in any kind of meaningful way, and I think the final example that I have explains this quite nicely. In Superman Annual number 11, the classic for the man who has everything, Superman and Wonder Woman kiss at the end of the story, and Superman wonders why they didn't do that more often, and Wonder Woman replies that it is too obvious. And I happen to agree with that. To me, and some may call me a purist for feeling this way, Superman's great love will always be Lois Lane. So dating Wonder Woman feels odd as long as Lois is around. Since Superman and Wonder Woman will age slowly, I believe that eventually they will be a couple. But that's only after Lois has assumed room temperature. So in the final estimation of, well, me, Superman and Wonder Woman are the not in the hot or not question. Sure, they'd be attracted to each other, but in the present, quote-unquote, so to speak, it just doesn't work. And now, back to Stella. It's always great to have guests, I think, on, on Shipper Spotlight, especially if they are more knowledgeable on this particular couple or they're a big fan of it as well. I think that's always great. 
The next Shipper Spotlight is going to be on Creeper and Harley Quinn, so stay tuned for that. And finally, my literature recommendation. I recently read for the first time, I'm sure many of you Bat fans may be upset that it was the first time, Batman Nightfall. And, oh man, it was a great ride from start to finish. I read half of it when I had to go to a retreat for the school uh, that I work at. All the, all the students go and all the teachers go. So I read half of that while I was on duty in the game room. And then I, I read half just, yeah, drinking coffee. And it was, oh man. It was just great, you know, nonstop action. And I think one of my favorite parts was the Zazz part, with, and especially his interaction with Batman and just, you know, we are alike and all this, and really breaking him down psychologically. And that was sort of the theme of it all, is just like watching Batman deteriorate from start to finish. And then, of course, you have that epic panel at the end where uh, Bane says, I will break you, and he does. <laughs> Which is one of the things that constantly pops up in Robot Chicken. Hopefully you saw the Robot Chicken special on Cartoon Network during the Adult Swim, and it was a DC Comics special. I think it was a season premiere, and so they did that. Uh, and Bane would just come out and uh, and break Batman all the time, and then they go, do-do-do-do-do-do, that's Bane! And he did it like four times. Uh, but yeah, I definitely recommend Nightfall, and I've ordered the second trade, so hopefully I'll be able to read that sometime soon. Okay, so we ended the year 1968 in this particular episode, and I always like to do sort of the best and worst, in my opinion, of, you know, the year of 1968. The worst, I'm going to give it to Batman Family number 16, and the best, I'm going to actually say, is Freedom Fighters number 14. Remember, you can send any questions or comments to backworldtooracle at gmail.com. Also, if you're pro-current Batgirl run or con current Batgirl run, be sure to send me an email uh, if you would like to sign up. Still got slot for one of each, basically. Continue to sign that petition to get Batgirl Year One back into production. Right, I'm still, I'm holding on hope. And also, remember that Nerdy Bird challenge that she had recently to, to get SBFF to have its own maybe 20 or 30 minute episode just like Teen Titans got from the, the, sh the DC Nation short. So let's try to do that. That would be great. Remember you can follow me on Twitter at Batgirl to Oracle. You can like my Facebook page which is well Batgirl to Oracle the Barbara Gordon podcast. Once again thanks again to Mile High Comics for sponsoring Batgirl to Oracle the Barbara Gordon podcast. Thanks also to TV.com for the episode summary for the jokes on Catwoman. Well until next time don't let your heart get broken by a favorite character and enjoy this lovely fall weather. Just get out there take a bike ride go hiking do something. But uh, I'll talk to you guys later fly on Babs lovers just plain Barbara Gordon masquerading for a lark as she rides into the night on her special Batgirl cycle who knows is the dynamic duo destined to become the triumphant trio only time will tell us more about this dazzling dare doll Batgirl. <sighs> I love a happy ending don't you